Uh, well, like I said, my name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome, uh, we would love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, like Aaron was saying, one of the best ways to do that is come to small group. Uh, you're welcome at them all. Mine is the best, and so feel free to join mine. The rest are okay, and you know they'll suffice in a pinch, but you know. Anyways, uh, <laughs> in all seriousness, they're, they're, they're all great, and we'd love to have you, any of them. So uh, excited as well about Vision Night tonight. Uh, again, whether you are new or you've been here a long time, we'd really encourage you to come check that out. It's a great way to figure out what River City is all about, what it looks like to be a part of that, and what God's doing and where we're headed this coming year. And so we'd love to have you join us tonight for Vision Night. So. And uh, all right, well, m moving on, all right, well, this morning we're going to continue working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's an Old Testament book of the Bible about Nehem a guy named Nehemiah, not 1 Corinthians, my brain is, we're really going to need to pray this morning, apparently, so anyways. Uh, so we are gonna, we're going to dig into the book of Nehemiah this morning, but if you've been gone or if you're just joining us for the first time, let me catch you up on that book and where we're at, and we'll dive in together. So the book of Nehemiah, like every other book in the Bible, is ultimately not a story about Nehemiah or the people who wrote it, but about God himself. They're all stories revealing to us something about who he is and what he is like and what it looks like for us to, to follow and love and worship him. And so the, the story that we find about God in Nehemiah is ultimately a story showing us about how God is sovereign and faithful to keep his promises. And we see that happening throughout the book is that what God's doing is he's using this guy named Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he's made to his people to forgive and renew and redeem and to, like, one, to gather his people again into a place where they can live for his glory. And, and so that story begins in Nehemiah chapter one, the guy named Nehemiah serving as the cupbearer to the great Persian king Artaxerxes, and he receives a report from his brother about the sad state of Jerusalem and how God's people living there are in, in shame and disgrace because the walls of that city are broken down. And, and that wasn't new information to Nehemiah. In fact, it would have been about 140-year-old information, but what happens is that God causes it to hit him in a new way. And God causes Nehemiah to have his heart for that city and all that it represents and for God's glory and God's people there. And, and so after months of praying and planning and seeking God, God, Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes and he asks him not only to uh, give him about a year off of work to go rebuild his hometown, uh, but he asks this king to also personally fund and endorse that project. Uh, not to mention the fact that this very same king had deliberately, expressly put the kibosh on all rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem just a few years prior. And so it is a truly bold request. And and yet what we see is like, because again, the book's not about Nehemiah and the plan's not his, it's God's work and his timing and his purposes, is that uh, the king says yes, because God's the one who's behind it all. And so armed with the support of King Artaxerxes and more importantly of God, Nehemiah embarks on the 900 plus mile journey from Persia all the way back to Jerusalem and and when he gets there, he, he goes to his fellow Israelites and he tells them about all that God's put in his heart to do and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to remove the disgrace that their broken down state is shaming God's name with. And, and he tells them about all that God's already done in changing the heart of King Artaxerxes and in blessing and providing for the work. And what happens is the response we see that people are all in. Right? People from every part of society come together to work on rebuilding the wall, and they're excited about it. And everything's going really well until you get to chapter 4. And chapters 4 through 6 in Nehemiah are full of all kinds of opposition. 
We see last few weeks that opposition is both internal and external. Internally, it comes in the form of fear and doubt and discouragement and exhaustion and even in corruption and injustice. That's just uh, an outworking of selfishness and greed and the pursuit of personal gain. And all those things, they threaten to derail the rebuilding work that God's called Nehemiah to lead his people. And, and it's not just internal, it's external. We see guys like Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem and how they uh, ridicule and mock and threaten with violence God's people. And when all that stuff doesn't work, they try to use trickery and subversive deception to try to basically instill fear in the people of God and get Nehemiah to discredit himself so that the work will stop. But what we see happening over and over in those chapters is that instead of being controlled by a fear of people, Nehemiah is controlled by a fear of God, a, a confident awe and reverence for who God is and all that he has done. And that empowers him to press into the work that God's called him to and to faithfully continue working on rebuilding the wall until amazingly, we saw last week after 52 short days, which I can imagine felt anything but short to the people working on the wall, um, the, the walls of, and gates of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, burnt, lying in rubble for the last 140 years, are finally rebuilt what we see happening is that the same people who are trying to instill fear in Nehemiah and the people of God are themselves becoming fearful because what they realize is that God's the one who's behind the project and that none of it would have happened without him and that they're on the wrong team, right? Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that stuck out to me last week, and we didn't have time to talk about this, is but what's so striking is that you get to chapter six and we've had all this opposition and all this story leading up to the building of this wall and the wall's completed and Nehemiah is basically just like, when the wall was done in 52 days, that was cool. We moved on, right? And you're thinking like, I feel like there should be like a party, at least like a pizza should get shared for people, right? Like we should have some kind of celebration, right? There doesn't have to be streamers, but at least balloons, right? Like something, right? And what you find is that there's, there's nothing. It's just a matter of fact, right? We, we, built, we finished the building the wall, no fanfare, it just moves on. And you think that the completion of the wall would kind of be the climax of the story, but it's not. Because what, what I hope that you've seen throughout our story so far, and what I want to keep showing you as we study, is that the book of Nehemiah is not about the rebuilding of a wall. Nehemiah's goal from the very beginning was never just about rebuilding the walls of God's city. It was always, ultimately, about rebuilding the very community of the people of God. Because the truth is, is that, is that the state of Jerusalem's walls wasn't the only thing that was meant to reveal God's glory and goodness to the world. And it was the attitudes and the actions of the people that lived within those walls. That was meant to herald God's praise and to glorify him by a people who lived reflecting him. And so Nehemiah holds off on celebrating because he knows that the rebuilding job's not done. And that in fact, it's actually just getting started. And so what we're going to see this morning as we continue the story is that the rebuilding of the people of God, it always begins, always, with the reprioritizing of the word of God. The rebuilding of the people of God, it always begins with the reprioritizing of the word of God. Because the, the truth is, is that God's word is the thing that has power to renew and transform and change. And it's only when God's word is returned to its rightful place as the highest authority in the, people, in the community of God that, and it's continually taught and explained that the people of God will be able to be rebuilt into a community that lives for the praise of God's glory, which is the very thing that we were meant to do from the beginning. So with that in mind, let me pray. We'll dive in 
and uh, see what God's word has to teach us in Nehemiah chapter 8. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for our time together in it this morning. And God, we're just grateful. And as we come to a passage that's all about hearing and responding to your word and how that transforms a community, God, we just humbly ask that as we hear and respond to your word, that you would transform our community and that we would increasingly be a people who are full of joy as we submit and surrender our lives unto you and who live in line with your word. And so, God, uh, I can't cause any of that to happen this morning. I don't have any power or authority to do it, but you do. And so, God, I ask for our good and for our joy as a church and more than anything, God, for your glory as we live as a people that are unto you. Uh, God, would you cause your word to be good news and highest authority in our lives this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning. Uh, We're actually going to start in the very end of the last verse of chapter 7 and head on through chapter 8. begins this way. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattahiah and Shemaiah and Ananiah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Masaiah. And on his left were Pedaiah, Mishael, Milkaijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam. And Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelaita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleiah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then the Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord our God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our God. And don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day, and don't grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And on the 13th day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. 
So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards and in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and one by the gate of Ephraim. And the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. All right, so... Lots going on in our passage this morning. Uh, at the end there, uh, hopefully uh, we'll make clear by the end, this is not a proof text for why camping is good because camping is objectively terrible, right? Um, but uh, we'll get there in the end. We'll flesh that out a little bit more later, right? So, um, so in our passage this morning, you can clearly see we've arrived at kind of phase two of the book of Nehemiah and of Nehemiah's plan, right? Phase one's all about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, not only because their dilapidated condition was kind of... Uh, a shameful disgrace to God's name, but because in those days you, you could not build a community of people without a wall to keep the people safe. You just, you couldn't do it. No wall, no community. No wall, no people, right? And so the rebuilding of God's people was at the very heart of phase two, and it was all, that was all about. And so phase one's complete. Nehemiah can move on to phase two. And like I said in the intro this morning, the, the rebuilding of God's people, it always begins with the reprioritizing of God's word. It always begins with the reprioritizing of God's word. And what you find in chapter seven is, is that uh, you find that once the walls are rebuilt, about 50,000 people began moving back into the city of Jerusalem. And I can only imagine how crazy that must have been. I was in college ministry for like 10 and a half years, and, and I remember every fall we'd move a couple of thousand students back into the dorms on campus and, and help with all that. And I thought that was intense, but we ain't got nothing on 50,000 people moving back into a city that has been uninhabited, basically, for like 140 years. Right? You can imagine there's a few things that need doing, right? Like maybe a good mop, right? Some vacuuming, at least. It had recently been a construction site, right? It can't be pretty, right? And yet what you see happening in the passage is that the people decide that the, the most important thing that they should be doing, their highest priority in the midst of moving a 50,000 people back into a city, their, their highest priority is to gather together to learn the Bible and to worship God. That's the thing that they put at the top of the list of must-dos, Right, verse 1, we read that, that they all gather together and they ask Ezra, the teacher of the law, their pastor, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. And that refers broadly to the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. Um, but specifically, it's an emphasis on the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God outlines in, in great detail what it looks like for his people in the Old Testament to act and to think and to relate to him and to one another. And, and so as he opens the book to read, they all stand up in honor of the significance of God's word that it has in their community. D.A. Carson, he, he says it this way. He says, the people stood up not as a mere formality, but as a declaration that from now on the words of this book were to be authoritative in the community's life. Now, before we dive in to all that we see in the passage and, and what's going on here, the implications of that, it's just really important that you notice how significant that reality is. You see, for generations, the Israelites had completely ignored God and his word. 
It's the very reason that they, God allowed them to be conquered and sent into exile because they absolutely disregarded what God had to say and what he thought and lived however they felt best. And so you gotta ask the question, how does a community that spent a whole lot of years disregarding God altogether go from ignoring God to asking Ezra to bring the word of God before them? And the reality is, is that the only way you can answer that question is that God's the one who does that transformation in them. And he's the one who does it, right? He gave Nehemiah a heart to rebuild the city and the people there when Nehemiah did not have that heart before. And God's the one who empowers the rebuilding of the walls in the midst of all kinds of opposition and fear and doubt. And he's the one that brings about the revival that you see happening in these people and in this city. And he does it for his name and his glory as he sees fit. And the truth is, is that it's not our strategies or techniques, although good and wise, that are the thing that brings about revival. It's God himself. He's the one that transforms people's hearts and that causes them to care about his word and his ways when they absolutely did not before. There is no other explanation that we can find other than that God's the one who is bringing about a revival in the midst of this people. And so Ezra opens the book and he begins to read from it. In verse three, he says that he read aloud from daybreak until noon, right? Like six hours. Some of you think my sermons are long. I ain't got nothing on six hours, right? Some of you should be writing me thank you letters after this. Thank you for not preaching for six hours. We really appreciate that, right? Anyway, so, so, so just like we see happening in this worship service, in our own worship services here at River City, we always open God's word together, always. You will never show up at River City some morning and find somebody talking about a random book that they read. What you'll always find is that we open the word of God because here's the reality. What I have to say is altogether and wildly unimpressive and unimportant. But what God says and what he thinks, that matters more than anything. I do not have anything to offer you other than what is in this book. I don't have anything to bring you that can transform your heart or your life. God's word is the one thing that has the power to do it. There's no amount of impressive persuasion or great speaking skill that can transform people's lives. God's word's the thing that does it. And so we will all, always open God's word here together. And if you've been around River City for a while, or maybe you grew up in a church that taught the Bible regularly, it can be easy to kind of just take for granted that like, yeah, we come to church and we read the Bible and somebody teaches us from the Bible about what God has to say. But the reality is, is that that is not always the case, tragically. I remember a while back going to a church a long time ago where a pastor went the entire message without even referencing the passage that the sermon was apparently supposed to be about, right? They didn't even read the passage. They never quoted it. They never mentioned it at all. The only way you could even tell it was a sermon about something in the Bible is because in the bulletin, it was listed, there was a passage listed that the message was about. It was the most worthless 15 minutes of endless babbling and unhelpfulness I have ever spent in my life, right? Because the reality is, is that without God's word, there is no power. And without God's word, there is no authority. And without God's word, there is no good news and no conviction and no repentance and no transformation because God's word is the thing that changes us. Not my words about it. It's his word that transforms. You see, it's really easy for us, I think, to forget that our words don't have any power to change people. 
That God's word is the thing that does. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Romans chapter 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. John 17, 17, Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth truth, your word is the truth. God's word alone is the thing that has the power to renew and transform a people. Nothing else. His word does, which is why reading God's word is so vitally important for the people of God. Read his word. But in the passage, we see that God's word isn't just read. It's also taught. Right, verse 7 and 8, we see the Levites, they're instructing the people in the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood. Right, this wasn't just like a knowledge dump. Right? It wasn't just like a, hey, we're going to read it, you don't understand it, it doesn't matter, but we did the thing and so moving on. No, what you see is that it was this careful explanation of the word of God, explaining it so that people could understand what it meant. See, to understand something is not merely to know about it. To understand something is to, is to grasp an idea and to understand how it changes and impacts your own life or your own reality. And so what Ezra and the Levites are doing is they're trying to help the people to see that what God's word meant and how it applied to their lives. This is especially important because as a people, they would have lived in Babylon in a foreign country and, and for generations prior ignored God's word altogether. And so what's happening is that, and one commenter points out, what Ezra and the Levites are really doing is they're helping them to bridge this gap between their last 70 years in Babylon with their spiritual heritage found in the scriptures. And they're explaining how parts which had been thought to be out of date and irrelevant are actually revealed to, as the underlying principles of God's will, which were of timeless significance. He goes on to write, it could not have been easy Although God's word is authoritative for life and faith in all matters of knowing God, it frequently takes hard work to understand and to contextualize and apply the message of God written in a foreign language in a distant time and place. And that's true, right? It just is. The good news is that although God's word is written to a specific people in a specific time, in a specific reason, it is anything but outdated and irrelevant. It is the timeless word of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, says it this way, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God, it endures forever. Which is why God's word is worth carefully studying and carefully explaining and applying to our lives. Church, I want you to know, I spend a lot of time, I take that really seriously as your pastor, I spent a lot of time studying and praying and seeking to, to understand God's word well and to teach it to you so that you might understand it and apply it to your lives. And I don't want us to just understand uh, more information about it, but I, or worse, to wrongly apply it to our lives. Instead, what I want is the truth of God's word to shape who we are, to inform and to transform not just our minds, but our lives as well. God's word is the thing that changes us. And it's only when we understand what God's word means that we'll be able to actually be transformed by it. 
and live in submission to it. Now, I just want to be clear, right? It, it doesn't take a seminary degree to like read your Bible and understand it. That's not what I'm trying to communicate it at all. But the reality is, is that it does take thoughtful time and careful study, right? Because you are reading a book that is real old and it was not written to you. And so it's important to thoughtfully and wisely and carefully engage it. And also, it doesn't hurt to have a good study Bible, right? It actually helps, okay? And so what's happening is that the Levites, they're making sure that the people understood what was being read and what was meant and how it applied to their lives. And what you see is that that's exactly what happens. End of verse 12, right? See that the people understood the words that had been made known to them. They got it, right? It was a message that was received and understood. And so what you see happens in the passage that God's word is being valued and prioritized and it leads to God's word being read and taught and understood. And, and in response to hearing and understanding God's word, we see three really key things, three really important things happening in the way that God's people respond to God's word. And the first is, is just simply this. You see in verse nine, right, that the people are responding to there are people are responding and they're experiencing godly sorrow over their sin. They're experiencing godly sorrow. Verse 9 ends with this sobering description of their response to hearing and understanding God's word. It says, All the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Right? Like, those aren't happy tears. That's not like, oh, the poetry is so moving, you know? Like, those are brokenhearted tears. And see, here's the reality, church, that the Israelites had spent generations ignoring God's word altogether and living as they saw fit. That's, again, at the heart of the reason why God allowed them to be conquered and sent into exile. They had ignored him altogether. And they had just heard God's word and law being read and explained for the last six hours. And it is safe to assume that they were feeling pretty convicted, Right? When you live your own way for generations, ignoring God and his word, it's pretty safe to assume when you hear God's word read that your life is going to be out of line with that. Our default mode is never to, to live for God and his ways. And they're weeping because what they're coming to understand is that their ways and their lives, they're out of line with God and his word and his ways. The Bible talks about that response as, as godly sorrow. And although Ezra and Nehemiah, they encourage the people not to mourn, what they're not saying is that their response is wrong. In fact, godly sorrow is the right and proper and good response anytime there is sin in our lives that's confronted by the word of God. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians here. He had confronted them on a whole lot of stuff in a previous letter. And, and he writes in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I am happy. Not because you were made sorry by my previous letter, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. He says, for you became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow only brings death. We see, godly sorrow is when we have a sorrow over our own sin because what we see is that it's a rebellion against God. Worldly sorrow is just being sorry about consequences because that sucks and we don't like them in our lives. But godly sorrow is about seeing that we have rebelled against God himself. And it brings about an altogether different reaction. What we see is that just like the Corinthians, the Israelites became sorrowful 
as God intended they would. And just like the Corinthians, their sorrow was leading to genuine repentance. And we'll, the, we'll see this fleshed out a bunch more in the next couple of chapters as we study the next few weeks. But the thing I want to point out to you here this morning is that repentance, it always looks like changed actions. You see, repentance is not just a change of mind or a change of perspective. Repentance is fundamentally a change in the direction of our lives. And what you see is that in the passage, it looks like obedience. It looks like actually choosing to obey God's word. That's the second way we see the people responding to God's word, by obeying it. We read in verse 13 through 15 about how when the leaders of the families, they went back to Ezra the next day to continue learning from God's word because apparently the six-hour sermon was not a turnoff. They actually liked it. Maybe I should try that. Anyways, um, they, they read about, they're, they're reading the book of the log, and, right, and they, they read about these specific instructions that God gives his people about how to celebrate the Feast of Booze, which was a week-long celebration of God's care for the Israelites during the years that they wandered in the wilderness and lived in temporary shelters and tents and booths. And, and from what we can tell in verse 17, God's people, they did celebrate this festival. It just kind of turned into something that was missing the point. And they kind of did it in their own way, disregarding God's instructions for them. And, and what we see is that, is that this, that changes with this generation. Verse 16, so the people went out. And they brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, and they actually start to obey God and his word. Now, in the grand scheme of things, you look at this little act of obedience and just like following the instructions God gives about how to celebrate this festival, and you're like, it's really not that big of a deal, right? It doesn't really seem all that significant. Like there's a whole lot of other more significant things that are probably going on that they really need to address and deal with, Right? But the reality is, is that this small act of obedience is actually communicating something much more significant. Because by obeying God in this small way, what, this, what these people are saying is that, God, you get to be in charge of everything. By obeying you in this, we are saying, God, we will obey you in everything. You get to be king. You get to be God. You get to be the one who says what is right and good and true and how we are intended to live, and we get to obey and you get to be in charge. And so they are submitting to God's word and obeying it with their lives. They're not just choosing the parts that they think are important to obey. They're not just choosing the parts that they think matter, that they think are significant. They're saying, God, you get to be in charge of everything. And we get to obey all that you have said. See, but it's so important that you see what comes next in the story. Because it's so easy for us to think that obedience to God is just like a drudgery, right? Where that's just like, oh, we just, we have to do it because we're supposed to. Let me show you something here. Because what hearing and understanding God's word, it doesn't just bring about godly sorrow and repentant obedience. What you see in the passage twice is that it produces great joy. The end of verse 17, right? In spite of the fact that they just moved back into houses in a city that just got rebuilt after everything they had been through, they choose to obey God and live in tents made out of sticks and leaves on their roofs in order to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness to their people. And what happens, you see, is that they're joy was very great. No one's ever been camping and had great joy, right? I'm, if I'm stuck on my roof, sleeping on some sticks, there's no way that great joy is what's happening in that moment, right? Great sorrow, yes. Great regret, yes. Great joy, no, right? But that's what you see happening. They have great 
joy. Because here's the truth, church, obeying God, it always brings about joy. It always does. Because the reality is that you and I, we think that we know best how life works. We think that we know best how to bring about joy and satisfaction and all those kinds of things in our life. And the reality is, is that we don't. But God is the king and creator of the universe. He's the one who made us. He knows how life works best. And so his ways are not, uh, they are not like a, a grounds, like just a, a, a strain keeping us from experiencing life. His ways are the promised best way to the fullest life there is. Because he made it and invented it and knows how it works. And what you see happening is that as God's people obey him, what it produces is great joy. Not sorrow, not drudgery. It produces great joy in them. But here's the thing. You can't miss this in the passage, right? Joyfully obeying God's word is not something they were going to do on their own. Zoom back in the passage a few verses. You get to verse 9 and 10, right? We see that the leaders, they're telling the people in the midst of their godly sorrow over their sin. They tell them, verse 10, don't grieve. It's for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He said the people were seeing how deeply out of line their lives were with God's word, how, full, how, how short they fell of his ways. And the natural human response when you see how short you fall of God's ways and his, his purposes is either one, to try harder, which has worked for zero people ever, or two, to give up, right? Yes, we're never gonna do it, right? We're too far gone. And I can imagine that is likely what many of them were tempted to be thinking in that moment. Our lives don't match up to any of this as they hear God's word read. But their leaders remind them that it's not their strength that causes them to obey. It's God's strength in them. He says, right, it's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. It's God's strength that brings joy, not condemnation and not shame. And so what you see happening is that people go away with a new motivation and power to obey that they didn't have before. It's God's joy and his strength made known into them because what they understand is how the words had been made known to them, right? They understand God's word and they saw their sin and their guilt and they were reminded about God's goodness and faithfulness to them in the midst of it all and what they saw in part you and I we get to see in full in the person and the work of Jesus you see the gospel is this reminder for us that a rebellious and wicked people who were far from God didn't find their way to him but were brought near by him Titus chapter 3 says it this way, it's not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of God's mercy, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. See, that's the message of the gospel, church, that we were a wicked and rebellious people who were not searching for God, but who the God of the universe came searching for us. He redeems and He renews and He brings about revival in our own hearts and in our own communities as He sees fit. And so we are given a priceless inheritance and a great joy because what we see is that although we did not deserve it, what we get is Him. We get His grace, His inheritance, 
made known to us. And what it does is it produces great joy in us. But see this, it's not just meant to produce great joy in us. It's meant to produce great joy in others as well. There were those there, there were people, not everyone was there that day. Not everyone could make it. Others needed to know about what was happening. You get a glimpse of that in, this, in, in chapter, uh, in verse 10 and 12. Me and my, they say to him, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who don't have anything prepared. Verse 12, then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy. You see, the people were never intended to keep this transformative experience because of the word of God to themselves. They were meant to share it with others. They're supposed to bring it to others. This is at the very heart of God's mission and purposes for his people from the very beginning. It begins in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls and commissions Abraham to be the father of his people and he promises that he's gonna bless Abraham. But more than that, that through him he would bless all the nations. You see, that purpose was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus who recommissions his people to be God's image-bearing, glory-reflecting people in the world, who proclaim his word and his commands, who go into every nation and make disciples so that people from every part of the globe might be a people who hear God's word, who hear it read and taught, and who God, by his grace, brings about godly sorrow and repentant obedience and great joy so that it all might start again and more people might come to know and love and worship him. We see it's the careful reading and teaching and preaching of God's word that God empowers by him that brings about this transformation in the people. What you see happening in the passage is nothing short of a revival. God brings this revival to his people. One commentator writes this. He says, though revival is God's work, we should also take into account the role of the leader, the role of scripture, and the changes revival brings. Hear this, Christian revivals are always related to a return of the scriptures. Christian revivals are always related to a return of the scriptures. Because without God's word, there is no power, and there is no authority, and there is no transformation, because God's word's the thing where all of it rests. So the question is, as a church this morning, and as for you and as individuals, what authority are you giving God's word in your own life? Is it the thing which you see as the right and highest authority? Is it the thing that you choose to submit and surrender yourself to, or is it something you hold yourself in authority over? Something you ignore you decide there's parts that you'd like to obey and parts that you don't want to and things that you think matter and things that don't. And to be God's people who bring about God's purposes, there's only one way to view God's word, that it must be the thing under which we submit ourselves. It must be the thing of highest authority because it's the very word of God. And so I want to encourage you this morning, what place of authority does it have in your own life? And if indeed it is the highest authority, then what will happen invariably is that we will become characterized by a people who respond in the similar kinds of ways that we see in the passage. We'll have godly sorrow as God's word confronts sin in our lives ongoingly. 
and it will lead us not just to mourn the consequences, but it will lead us to be a people who, who have a repentant obedience, who choose to reject our own ways and choose to obey God, and what it will always bring about is great joy in you and in others, because that's what God's word always does. It always does. And the reason why all of that is possible, the reason why any of that is true is because of Jesus' redeeming and renewing work on the cross. Without him, we just stand guilty under God's word, and there is no hope for us because we look at it and we find ourselves endlessly out of line. But because of the gospel, we find God's grace made known to us that makes us new people. And it's God's grace to us that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus, the great God and creator of the universe, the very word of God made manifest, made flesh, that he allowed his body and his blood to be broken on our behalf to pay the penalty that our sin justly deserves so that we might be made new and be adopted back into God's family so may live as his people for his glory. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember. To remember all that Jesus has done on our behalf so that we might be a people who joyfully submit ourselves to him and you find great joy as we obey him. And so if you have put your trust in Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, if he is the one whose hope is in and the king to whom you surrender, then I want to encourage you during our time of communion, go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful remembrance of all that he has done for you and his grace made known to you. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is, and you're still deciding if you want to submit to God and surrender to him and allow his word to be the thing of highest authority in your life, I just want you to know, one, you are so welcome here. I'm so glad that you would join us, and I would love to be a part of whatever road God has you on with that. But also I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after going through the motions and just doing religious rituals. He's after a heart that is gladly surrendered to him. One that says, God, you get to be king. You get to be in charge, not of some things, of it all. And I'll joyfully surrender to you. And so if that happens for you this morning and that changes in your heart this morning and you want to submit and surrender to him, then go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful celebration of all that Jesus did so that could be possible. And as we sing, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I just want to encourage you, talk with God. Be honest with him about the role that his word plays in your own life. Ask him how that needs to be changed and shaped so that you might be uh, someone who experiences the same things we see in the passage. That as we read God's word and hear it taught, that we would have godly sorrow that leads to repentance and great joy. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your word. Thank you that we get to study it and through it to know you, God. And we ask humbly this morning that you might graciously by your spirit's power, God, cause your word to be good news to us. That we might see it as good news that is worth submitting and surrendering to. That we might see your ways and your purposes, God, as better than our own. And that we might, out of a godly sorrow that comes from you, God, live lives of repentant obedience, full of great joy for us, and great joy in the lives of others. God, we can't do any of that on our own. We ask that you do it in us for our good 
and for your glory, we pray. Amen.